Welcome to another exciting episode of the SASMA podcast. My name is Dr. Mignon Ras, and today I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Gavin Shang onto the show to chat about some of the medical challenges surrounding amateur sports, specifically field hockey, competing in professional codes. Dr. Shang is currently the medical director for the South African Hockey Association and the traveling team physician for SAHA and has developed their medical infrastructures from inception to implementation over the past 14 years. He has been fieldside as our senior national team physician for 162 test matches, which include 69 tests for the senior national ladies, 89 for the senior national men's, and five for the under-21 men's teams. He was appointed as the chief medical officer for the FIH African Cup and Olympic qualifier in 2015, and as the CMO for the World League semifinals in 2017. He has supervised and coordinated the medical support for 110 FIS, FIH test matches in total. He was part of the SASCOC medical team as one of the traveling team physicians at the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games in 2021 and for the 2022 Birmingham Commonwealth Games, where he was also the COVID-19 liaison officer for Team SA. He has been the chief medical officer, medical director, and sports and exercise medicine physician for various professional and amateur sporting codes that have included working with the England and Wales Cricket Board, the FIH, SA Cricket, the European Golf Tour, the ATP and WTA, and the World Rugby Sevens. Dr. Shang is also currently an active ultra-endurance road and trail runner, as well as mountaineer, having completed two Comrades Marathons, several two Ocean Ultras, and multiple single and multi-stage ultra-endurance events. Welcome, Doc Shang. I'm obviously very passionate about today's episode due to my background Thank in you. field hockey. <laughs> um, and as well as having a family member in the current setup. So I really look forward to gaining some insight into the challenges faced, as well as being able to share these challenges uh, on this platform. And I think maybe for starters as to how we got to this podcast, you can tell us a little bit about your background and day-to-day -day currently and where you are based. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me, Emmanuel. Um, yeah, my name is Dr. Gavin Shang. I'm a sport and exercise medicine physician based up here in uh, rainy Joburg at the moment. Um, yeah, the rain's come back again. Um, I've been here since 2010, having come back from Dubai in the Middle East, I completed my info sports med down at UCT in Cape Town at the Sports Science Centre um, there in Newlands uh, from 2005 to 2008. Spent a year and a bit over in the Middle East. Came back and then, yeah, I've been based at the Centre for Sports Medicine and Orthopaedics in Rosebank ever since. And, yeah, practice as an SE, uh, SEM physician and have been so, yeah, since then. And I've been lucky enough to be in with SA Hockey um, for the past, sure, giving away my age, I think, I guess for the past 14, 15 years almost. So I've been quite fortunate to be with one association, I would like to say, in between doing other things for quite a period of time. So I've been able to see the changes over time. And luckily enough, I've been there since, I guess, as you said, the inception of a medical program into an amateur code um, in a professional sport. Uh, which hockey is around the world, um, and developed it with the help of many colleagues over time, which is, uh, yeah, which has brought a lot of challenges. Um, we've learned a lot of lessons. Um, still haven't got everything 100% right, 
but we are we're getting there. And I think our recent results for both the ladies and the men um, over the last couple of years have shown that. So hopefully from our side, from a medical point of view, we've started um, to make a an impact where where we can obviously help the players and the management just concentrate on what they need to do, which is basically play on the park and forget about everything else that we can take care of the things that they really don't have to worry about at the end. Yeah, I think that's that's amazing. And then quite a cool way that we came into contact with one another, uh, with my brother being <laughs> the current uh, South African uh, main setup and, and needing some medical help. Yeah. And I think just from my side, mm-hmm. That's where my love for sports came about, uh, being an ex-provincial and a brief moment in the junior South African setup uh, and mm. also just completing my coursework, uh, my infill coursework through UCT. So, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. Um, and I think oh, we'd really just love to find out how did you get involved in hockey specifically and what has actually kept you there despite all of its major challenges? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, well, back on what you've just said now, you, you're starting out. I think I'm in the middle, uh, <laughs> middle of my career, so to speak, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I started playing hockey myself, but that was, I think, when I was 12 years old, and that was mainly to improve my cricket. Um, and then that changed to when I uh, finally concentrated on hockey. And I think it was mainly because of my coach at that time who, yeah, Mark Johnson. Um, people here in Joburg will know Mark. He works at St. John's um, at the moment. Um, he's an old JP boy. And he, I think, was the first coach personally to to really believe in me. Um, and that, for example, is what we see in our players today. If you can see someone who believes in you from a coaching point of, from a coaching perspective towards the player and vice versa, it's, yeah, yeah, it really, really does help you pursue that that sport. And today, I know we see a lot of children who play many different activities and many sports, and in my mind, possibly too much. Um, people have different opinions on that, but uh, that is my opinion alone. Um, and and you can see it on a daily practice how many injuries we see in younger and younger individuals. But yeah, I mean, I played hockey throughout high school. Uh, was lucky enough to be part of some really good teams. Played with some players who actually went on to play in the national setup, which was uh, which was great to see. I made some old uh, provincial teams, which were known as Trotsvall <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> and not about things. So that is uh, that is taking me way way back. Played Premier League hockey um, for Wits during medical school, and then obviously afterwards played club hockey um, up to a point where unfortunately I got injured. Um, yeah, I mean that's in a way. Yeah, I'm looking back how I stayed. Well, one got into sports medicine itself. I was trying out for the under 23s um, on a provincial level, and then in one movement blew out my ankle, my knee, and my groin, um, and that was me done. So that was the end of my hockey career. Um, and then from then on, only played socially up to a point where my back gave out. But from that lone experience, having have to going through the roots of, I guess. I mean, we only used to have, what, two months of orthopedics during our training, you know, um, having to go to the orthopedic surgeon 
having to go through the rehab process and seeing what athletes, I wouldn't term myself an athlete, but what athletes would go through on that level made me curious to see if there was a career in sports and exercise medicine down the line. Um, and luckily enough, found it, you know, so went through the same process as you and many others have gone through and are going through at this point in time. Um, and then, in yeah, obviously finished my studies, went overseas, was luckily enough to try and start a clinic over there in the Middle East, which unfortunately was derailed by the financial crisis in 2008. And then I had to come back to South Africa and was lucky enough to stay associated with the practice under which I trained, which was and still is a multidisciplinary setup um, at the Center of Sports Medicine in Rosebank. And in 2010, I got a call up from Saha out of the blue and from Giles Bonnet, who is the current coach and who was the coach back then of the ladies team. And Giles and Saha both approached me, me having treated some of their players in private, saying, would I like to come on board and help them to prepare for the 2012 London Olympics at that stage? Because they didn't have any medical support at that time, meaning they didn't have a full-time physio. They didn't definitely didn't have any medical doctor involved and they didn't know how to start a program um, because they wanted, and they had a very talented group at that stage. Um, and I can throw out some names. I mean, Shenny Russell, Peter Kutsia was back then. Um, yeah, you know, and they really wanted to give that group a good go at um, at breaking through at that level. So we started, or I started basically pitch side at a few test matches. Um, Carla Ludovics, who was the physio at that time, um, yeah, who I knew through private practice, we worked quite, uh, and again, yeah, we worked after hours with all of the players and got them as prepared as we could. And I mean, that was the medical team, was just the two of us at that stage, no strength and conditioning coach, no nutritionist, no mental, um, no, yeah, no, no mental coach on board nothing and yeah we got them there um which was uh which was great uh to be involved even in in the background you know just to start getting involved with the team and then 2013 came along and then Saha wanted to expand my role and Charlie Pereira who was the coach of the men's team at that point um we had a great sit, sit down meeting with him um Saha and with uh Prof Ponky Furrer who is an ex-national player who's an orthopedic knee surgeon um up here in Johannesburg and very well known on the circuit up here um we all sat down and tried to figure out a plan how we could expand this to both national teams uh which we slowly did and through that, we've grown over you know, 14, 15 years to what I'd like to think is as close to a professional medical setup as possible, even though every single one of us have our own practices still to take care of, our own jobs and careers and families as well to consider. Um, so at the moment, there's me, luckily enough, being a medical coordinator or director over both of the medical senior teams, um, well, the medical the medical staff of the senior teams, um, as well as the under-21s, the indoor teams, and the junior teams under, under those in both indoor and outdoor setups. So we've got physios which rotates on a regular basis throughout the teams. 
um, on a consistent level so that the players at least know the physios and the physios know the players quite well. And we've got a good handover system where the reporting is uh, can always be better, I'd say. But yeah, the reporting and the handover at least has gotten better over time so that the new physios that come into the system will take over from tour to tour or from season to season, know where the players are at and what uh, and where the players are and what needs to be done. So we've got that in place and now we've brought in strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and as I said, one of the biggest, I think, biggest changes and positive moves that we've made in the last couple of years is bringing on mental mental conditioning coaches um, to prepare the guys better from that standpoint, not just physically. And recently as well, we've got nutritionists and dietitians on board as well now. So we've got a full medical complement of staff which we can lean on um but again notably the biggest challenge is that yeah none of us do get paid um we all volunteer our services and our time for the team and for the management and we're there whenever they need and wherever they are based because a lot of our players are based all around the country um or overseas as well so it's it yeah very very challenging at times but we we try and make it work no, I mean that's absolutely incredible, and and I mean I saw firsthand and still see the the financial challenges that are there, and it's it's really amazing that you've been able to set up a, sort of a medical team in order to manage these players, and I suppose sort of in competition time it's it's slightly easier uh, because the team is all together yeah. and you've got face to face with the athletes. But, I, you know, yeah. I always wonder out of competition when, when players go back to their various varsities, their clubs, their provinces, how do you manage that? Because, I mean, once again, like you said, you're not being paid um, and it's it's yeah. quite difficult. You know, not all these players, some of the clubs and varsities may have quite a good medical setup and some may yeah. not. Some are overseas. Some have medical insurance. Others have none. So, yeah. you know, how do you go about that or how do you manage that? Yeah, so you've nailed quite a few of the points down there already. I mean, let's take the ladies and the men's setup at the moment and how they're structured, which is two very different uh, infrastructures. The ladies have a centralized system, meaning that all of them are based in Cape Town, which is great. And there are very few that are based overseas. There are one or two at the moment and a, f- a handful that are based in other provinces around the country. So they usually can get together a lot more often than the men can because the men have a decentralized system where the majority of the players are actually based overseas at this point, playing in you know countries. Um, you're looking at Holland, Germany, Belgium, the United Kingdom, Ireland, so spread all over the world. Um, and the one thing that has kept this thing going, well, from a medical standpoint, is open lines of communication. I'd say um, we've got, and yeah, we've got great colleagues, um, not just locally but abroad. Um, and it's one thing that, positively, I think that came out of COVID <laughs> for for all of us is that we are we were all on multiple Zoom calls and had to manage players all over without having any touch time or or time together face to face with anyone and and you have to rely on on the person that you're talking to and and you need it as well and 
And I think that's one of the, the most important things is that you have colleagues that you can, one, contact and two, build a network around um, in all the provinces. And that we do have, particularly in the bigger cities, but also in the smaller cities. So in Cape Town, we've got the Sports Science Institute, which does help quite a bit. Um, you guys that are based down there in Stellenbosch, um, East London PE, we've got colleagues there. Durban obviously is a big, um, you know, big contingent as well as up here in Joburg and Pretoria. And because of COVID, as I said, over many a Zoom call, we were luckily enough able to be more, I guess, open in communication with all the team physicians involved in the different countries. And we've gotten a WhatsApp group that goes on and has been going on for years now where, for example, of teams, and we're not the only amateur team, should I say, that is in this professional sport. There are multiple countries, for example, Canada, New Zealand, even sometimes the UK. Um, you're looking at Argentina, uh, Spain, you know, some of the smaller countries that uh, cannot afford a full medical support team to travel with their teams to South Africa. And similar for us, when some of our teams go abroad, we can't take everybody with. There just, there just isn't enough funds in order for that to happen. So you take the bare minimum with you. But we've got colleagues in a network set up that we know that if they go to a certain country, we have help available on the ground. So yeah, sometimes the teams can only travel with a physiotherapist if, for example, as well, if a physio can't go with because they can't find a locum to cover their practice back here. I mean, I'm going over there as the medical doctor, but I'm doing the physio treatments, for example, or that's how I started as well, which was quite daunting. And then YouTubing how to strap an ankle and, and going through the, the McConnell techniques and all of those things, you know. So it's – and then you rely on – I mean, like when you travel through Africa and India, for example, we rely on their physio students that are around if we can't travel with a physio or we can't get a physio to travel with us because, again, they can't get paid coming coming with us over there, that we rely on the students available to gain experience. And our players, luckily enough, are open to that. And that also helps to get player buy-in from everybody Everybody in the setup, um, management players understand the circumstances we have to perform under. Um, and the buy-in has been great. You know, the guys and the ladies, they know and are very open to what they need. Um, they understand the constraints as well, which is good. Um, and everybody is on the same page. Um, it sounds like, like, uh, geez, I don't know. It just sounds like it works, but. Sometimes it doesn't, for sure, but we make it work, and that's the main thing. Um, that is, I think, is the difference between an amateur and a professional sporting code is that no matter what, we have to make it work somehow, some way, and we do. We find a way. You know, if we can't get sponsors, then we will try and get things at cost, for example, for medical and physio suppliers. And we luckily enough have built up relationships over time with uh, with companies that are able to assist and help us out. And their return on investment in this new age of social media, I mean, the ladies and men's are both very good at promoting those companies, hoping to give them some return 
on investment or value in helping us out as we go along. And that goes the same for any of the medical contingent that comes along or helps us out um, on tours or even from afar. So it's helped. But again, it's not a perfect system, but we work around it as best we can. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think just a, a couple of comments on, on what you mentioned. So I actually saw firsthand the change to the centralized program for the women, um, having yeah. gone past sports science a couple of times and actually a lot of the female players having actually moved to Cape Town in order to be in a centralized program. Yeah, and it, it's made a massive difference. Um, and it's also just incredible the commitment that these players have to their sport because once again, it's yeah. an amateur sport. So they're moving to, to a different city. Yeah. Um, they still have to find work and work in that city. And, you know, I really take my hat off to these players. Yeah. And it's like you say, the buy-in from the players is so incredible. And yeah, um, 100%. I mean, you got a player, I mean, one of the co-captains, Erin Christie, she had to pack up her life here in Joburg and move down to Cape Town, you know. So and that that has happened in the last year only. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the ladies set up, um, they're lucky to have a centralised programme. Um, they're lucky, they're very, very fortunate to be able to get together as often as they can. And it showed on the field. Um, if you, uh, for, for people who, and you obviously watched the AFCON tournament this last two weeks, how they performed on the field. And that helps the men different and a little bit more difficult. Um, having players from around the world having to reorganize their lives, so to speak, ask for leave get unpaid leave, pay for their own, you know, flights to come back. Um, and that's just after IPT having to come back again, um, having a week's worth of selection and preparation all in one, and then going straight into a tournament where they haven't had any time to be together since I think the World Cup in January in India, you know, so two completely different systems, but Again, both of them make it work as best as they can. Um, yeah. 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 And I think just to touch on that, you know, remaining committed because we look at something like the uh, first ever FIH Nations Cup, right, which was hosted by South Africa towards the end of last year. Mm. And our men, yeah. they performed phenomenally, actually won that tournament against all odds, which meant that they had a ticket into the Pro League which is obviously the league you want to be in. That's where you play. That's where you prepare. Uh, only to yeah. find out that they couldn't meet the financial deadline and they then lost their slot to the runners-up, which were Ireland. Uh, and yeah. I think, you know, that's obviously quite devastating for these players. Um, and just to yeah. remain committed to the sport, continuously finding funds to get, you know, places using GoFundMe, using family members, asking varsities for money to actually get to these tournaments. And then, you know, as a medical mm. practitioner, then having to also focus on their medical care, you know, that's obviously the last thing on their mind. They're just trying to get to the tournament. Whereas yeah. I think in a professional setup, they're not worried about any of the logistics of getting to a tournament, right? They just arrive and all they have to, to focus on is their own health and their, you know, preventing yeah. injuries. Where it's, a, it's a completely different ball game for, for these players. And I think that must be quite challenging from your side, right? You have to incorporate that yeah. professionalism into these players. Although, you know, they're mm -hmm. still working on the side and they still have to prevent their injuries. They still have to rehabilitate. Um, yeah, that must be quite a challenge. So... 
yeah, there's a lot to answer there. So let me try and go back uh, a couple of years. Um, so COVID, again, uh, for us, wasn't anything new in a way. If I'm just talking from the men's setup where we would be constantly on Zoom calls anyway with the players trying to track them far from a distance and luckily again because of technology you could track players through simple devices garments polars whatever you know whatever apple device they had and see how much mileage they were doing on a day-to-day basis on a weekly basis for their clubs as well as for extra work that was given to them by our strength and conditioning coaches as well it actually even the playing field for Tokyo because the professional nations didn't know what to do during that time. They didn't have enough preparation time. They didn't, and again, it showed. I mean, we were up. If you remember back to Tokyo, we were up three 0 against Holland. Unfortunately, we lost that game. Um, we beat Germany four three, which was one of the most yeah amazing games to be a part of. Um, and we unfortunately just missed out on the quarterfinals. And then again, because of COVID, we got into the Pro League for the first time because the restrictions for, if I can remember this correctly, it was Canada and New Zealand that couldn't mm. leave their countries during that time. We got invited to go. And again, somehow, some way, um, we scrapped together the funds and it was an interesting time um, last year, geez, it was actually last year where I think we all took about 50 flights to six or seven different countries. Um, And it's something we've never experienced before. And it took a lot out of everybody um, from all perspectives uh, in order to make that work, but we did. And it gave us, I think our first glimpse into what a professional setup would would need um, in terms of everything, of player commitment, of player sacrifice, uh, together with management as well. Um, We had a rotating group of 40 players, which we had to keep an eye on, uh, because obviously, as uh, again, uh, to emphasize, all the players do have their own jobs uh, that they have to hold down, and nobody has leave to take six to nine months out of the year just to go play just to go play hockey overseas or wherever they are needed so things logistically was a challenge for for that entire year and then we got to com games and the experience of pro league showed how much we had improved over that time even though we didn't want a single game in the pro league uh, we improved just from the exposure and at com games we yeah we finally made the knockout phase of a major tournament we made the semi-finals and narrowly lost to india in the semi-finals um and that just shows the potential of what exposure and consistent playing on a high level can do for a team and yeah, having won the nation's cup straight after that and unfortunately not having the funding to go forward with it was very disappointing um it's made this year very different because it was nations cup and then into world cup and then we've had nothing until now and it's been it's been a constant challenge uh, in the background for everyone to deal with but as you said the guys have been as professional as they can be trying to keep things together um we've been monitoring them 
um, luckily enough again, um, how they've been doing injury-wise um, through through various systems. Um, and our strength and conditioning coaches have played a major role in keeping the players on point. Because back in the day, geez, if you look 10, 15 years ago, you would have players rocking up to to the tournament because we couldn't have anything a, a camp before the tournament. Uh, coming to the tournament, completely out of shape, injured, and you'd have to deal with it there <laughs> um, some again somehow and get them ready. And we only used to win the last game of the tournament where we used to peak, where we should begin those tournaments at that level. So that's changed. Um, and luckily enough, again, through technology, constant communication and buy-in from everybody, we've been able to get players even on a short space of time. Um, as I said, these last two weeks, the guys have had to come in, do two a days for selection and preparation, um, have a day off and then go straight into a major tournament to try qualify for the next Olympics, which fortunately they, they did in a very tense matchup against Egypt on Sunday. So, yeah, you know, hats off to everybody involved. Um, and that goes from, yeah, the goalkeeping staff, which, yeah, you know, Colin Fielding, who put in hours and hours of, of work with the keepers. Um, yeah, to the strength and conditioning coach, Miles Usher, to, you know, our physiotherapist, who literally had to tag team to Greshna and Tanya, who Greshna was only up here for the camp because they run a practice together down in, down in Stellenbosch. Tanya then had to come and take over because they couldn't find a locum in between. So, yeah, you know, and then I was driving up and down to Pretoria every day. So, I mean, we all make these sacrifices and we all try get the team to a point where, as you said, they don't have to worry about anything. And fortunately for us, we didn't have any major issues. Uh, there were a few, but, you know, nothing that we couldn't manage together as a group. And we've worked together so much over the years that we know that, the person there can handle the situation. And if they can't, everybody's just a phone call away. And if they do need something, we can at least have a colleague close by if we can't get there in order to take take care of it or to help out. So, so yeah. No, I, I think that that's, uh, yeah, it's really incredible that you can make those sacrifices. And um, you mentioned a couple of challenges in that sort of, just sort of led slightly off the topic we've been discussing, but just moving into, if we look at hockey and as a couple of hockey specific injuries, uh, yeah, look yeah. At, at sports like rugby, where they're very strict blood and concussion protocols. Are there specific mm. protocols in place for hockey? Um, because, you know, these injuries are quite frequent. Yeah, no, they are actually. I mean, um not as frequent as any other well, other contact sports uh, like rugby. But as you saw on Sunday, your brother, I mean, Jacques took a knock to the head um, and got a quite a deep scalp laceration and was bleeding quite uh, quite profusely. Um, took him into the change room. And for any blood, um, I wouldn't call it a blood bin, but uh, any bleeding on the field, the player does get taken off. Um, they are taken off if medical care has to come onto the field. So they're off for two minutes. They can be substituted. Um, yeah, took Sharks into the change room, stitched him up quickly and got him back onto the field, luckily enough, uh, which was, uh, yeah, it happens. Um, I think 
it's happened less and less fortunately um mainly because of the rules changes as well as for protective equipment as well um we try to ask all the players to to wear mouth guards for example um some players don't and it was earlier this year yeah it was earlier this year and it always happens it's not during the game we got to worry about it's practices <laughs> and, and and normally the last practice before before the tournament starts is uh is where situations happen i mean this year at the world cup one of our players um yeah got a laceration i was in the transport uh, or the ambulance transport to the hospital got a call on the phone that someone had taken a, a stick to the face also brought him to a hospital had to suture him up right there um and then we had to fly him back home where he eventually had to have a dentist yeah um take care of his teeth that were missing and a plastic surgeon take care of the laceration so uh, yeah, these injuries do happen uh, quite. Uh, uh, they do happen every tournament, should I say. From a concussion standpoint, we've had to deal with um, a few, from a medical point of view, interesting situations, I would say. I remember the first concussion case that I had to manage on tour was on the under-21 tour to India. Um, it was our first time in India for any one of us. And um, he took a knock literally on the last play, on the last practice uh, before the tournament started the next day. Um, and we had to make a call then whether or not to send him home or not. It wasn't a... Uh, look, we don't grade concussions, as you know, from mild, moderate to severe, like um, other injuries. But we knew with his symptoms and the length of time we had there that we could manage him um, and get him back onto the field. And we did. You know, he played, I don't think he, I mean, he only played two games at the end of the tournament, but uh, at least he was able to stay um, during that tournament as well. The other thing that I've recently mentioned or previously mentioned in this discussion was that some teams couldn't travel with a medical doctor. And so we were staying with the New Zealand team, uh, us and the English in, um, in the complex there in India. And the New Zealand team didn't travel with a, a medical doctor and one of their players got concussed. And what we did was both of us, uh, the England medical doctor and myself helped out. And we're able to get that player back onto playing as well safely, going through the normal concussion protocols that, uh, that yeah, are based obviously on either rugby, um, if you're looking at um, South Africa for our sport, or otherwise on the NFL protocols over in the US. So, you know, those type of things do happen. And more, more recently, you know, one of the tougher calls has been when to fly or can you treat a player who's concussed um, on tour and still allow them to play? Or do you fly another player in and fly that player back? Mm. It was his first, he was about to get his first international cap. And he also got concussed in a practice before a tournament. And we had to make a call together as a management and a medical team. And for me, it's, it's great to work within a management structure which actually trusts and also a player a player structure which trusts the medical team's judgment 
And for me, we never make the call in isolation. We make a call as a medical team. And whether it's the physio, the bio, the sports and conditioning coach and myself that are there with the player and the management, we discuss it. And unfortunately, at that tournament, we had to send Diane home because we knew he wasn't going to get anywhere near where we needed him to be safely to get back onto the field. So we had to send him home. And that's one of the tough calls that I think we've had to make. Uh, lastly, I mean, more recently, our previous captain um, has had multiple concussions over the last number of years, unfortunately. And a call had to be made by him um, whether or not to continue with his career. Um, and we got multiple opinions um, from various sources. But I think one important aspect that um, that he did do himself was to talk to Pat Lambie, for example, another player um, from another sport for sure, but another player who was going through or had gone through the same instance that mild hits and knocks i mean literally running into a player and having symptoms playing post most of the time um so also obviously very dangerous for him to take a knock regardless if he was wearing a face mask or not because his hand-eye coordination or um yeah visual ocular response time was going to be a lot slower than normal the pragmatic decision to retire um which is always a difficult one uh, for any player to retire because of an injury but i think you can for example if you are done because of a disastrous knee injury for example a multi-ligament uh, multi-ligament injury for an acl pcl and mcl uh, combined um to put it mildly then you know your career is going to be shortened but from a concussion it's difficult because you can't see the pathology as we know and uh, neurocognitively is where the decision lies so he made the pragmatic decision to retire uh, which is a big loss for the country um, but again, yeah, that's some of the things that we that we do deal with from a medical standpoint, from a concussion and a blood standpoint, I think. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think those are the tougher decisions, right? The ones that aren't black and white. And <laughs> I think that's where it is really mm. important to to ensure that you seek the assistance from you know your whole team as you mentioned and and make yeah. a decision together yeah. with a player and that's what's really important yeah. um yeah so you actually mentioned um the mouth guards and like you said it's actually not mm -hmm. compulsory yet so that's always an interesting element yeah. and and some players wear it and i think touching on some of the uh protective equipment um i suppose some of the other things we mm. look at is protective gear in short corners but once again, unless this has changed, also not compulsory. So it's very dependent on the player. Um, yeah, not compulsory. Yeah. Or I don't know, some countries as well can't afford it. Um, and if you watch the recent AFCON tournament, unfortunately, some 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 countries don't have the equipment basically because of affordability. We're in a lucky position that we do have the equipment. Um, but it does and it has changed the game. The game has got a lot faster, a lot more skillful. Um, and at the PCs in particular is the time where we used to worry the most though. Um, having the ability to wear, I guess, cricket gloves, uh, boxes, you know, shin guards, knee pads, elbow pads, helmets, face masks. 
have changed everything there from a medical standpoint that we can worry less. Um, but again, trauma still does happen. And the majority, luckily enough for us, even though they still occur, um, aren't that major. The major injuries that we see can be ocular, dental, um, which fortunately haven't had to deal with much, but they, when they do occur, they can be disastrous. Um, and then mainly lacerations. So field side care from a medical perspective on a hockey, on a hockey pitch, you, you do need to have that in mind that of what injuries may occur. So I'll take this weekend as an, as a prime example. If people rewatch the game and, and you were there and also helped out as well. So two situations did happen. One was your brother, Jacques, unfortunately, who got a stick to the, uh, stick to the head, uh, had a deep laceration, which had to be sutured. Um, and then he was allowed to be, uh, yeah, he was allowed to come back onto the field, uh, cause we got the bleeding to stop, which was, uh, which was great. The other one, which was went down. Um, and again, anything can happen on the field. And one of the things that, we, I guess, in the medical profession have seen, particularly, I guess, in in soccer recently, as well as if you follow some of the American sports in basketball, is younger athletes collapsing because of cardiac events. Um, and the one thing that happened on Sunday was and collapsed in the fourth chucker, I think it was, and the referees and the medics did not realize what was happening. Um, fortunately enough, um, we both ran onto the field, you from, uh, on the spectators, which was great in all honesty and all jokes aside, it was great to have another set of hands there. If you saw the incident and if you see a player collapse out of nowhere, the first worry that comes to mind, particularly in a sport where ballistic type of injuries happen from my side as a cardiac event and potentially a commotion, uh, cordis though which is very, very rare, but anything can happen. And even though we do screen players, commotion cordis, as you know, is an impact uh, which can happen um, that can cause a sudden arrhythmia. Um, and running there, that was the first worry. And I think everyone's first worry from a medical point of view, is it a cardiac event that has just happened though? And that comes into the preparation and and it always is at the back of your mind because yeah, you know, for a preparation standpoint from a local organizing committee or an FIH or an international event, having a DFib machine nearby is necessary one, but the sooner you can start uh, basic CPR is 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 where you are going to, hopefully you never get in that position, but that is where you are going to buy that person um, time, you know, and hopefully... It never comes to it, but hopefully save their life and not lose a life on the field, which can happen, though. That I don't think it's ever happened on a hockey pitch. Um, and again, if you go back to the PCs, I don't think any of them, the first waves or even the postman or the second waves, wear any chest pads, which is another thing that might you know, help absorb the forces, though. Even though it's a rare event, it just takes one to change the game. And if that ever unfortunately does happen, you know, it's one thing that us on the FIH as well as on the groups do discuss or have discussed in the past is whether or not further protective equipment is necessary. 
mouth guards. We encourage all of our players to, but some players just say they can't breathe with them in or they can't talk and they just aren't comfortable with it. So they don't wear it. It's not great. And when dental injuries happen, they are, they're not nice <laughs> when they do happen. Um, in America, I know they tried in the college system where all players were wearing lacrosse face masks or eye masks at one stage to prevent ocular injuries. I don't see that happening with the FIH um, and on in, on an international level at all. But in the college system in the states, that's what that's the extent they've gone to 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 try and protect their players more from injury, though. Absolutely, Gavin. Um, yeah. So I, you know, just to touch on that, and I think it's it's like you say, it very rarely occurs during the match, and that's often when the most medical support is there. And and you know we. Uh, we did have a good giggle about it and had an extra bodyguard on that side of the field after, <laughs> after that event. <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, like you said, I, I do know of a couple of cases of hockey players in a, in a practice that it's actually happened to here in, in Cape Town and sounds like sudden cardiac events. But I think that's just another element of the really big elite uh, sports teams. You know, they've got medical support almost 24-7, I suppose, not at every single practice, but, you know, all sort of, partial contact yeah. as you know that the medical team and the doctor has to be there and there's an AED yeah. on the field and you know if it's if it's an amateur sport that just doesn't happen and and it's it's you know it's great right. it should be there but who's going to fund it and I think that's the big problem and yeah. it's one of the challenges but I think that we just we have to just adapt with what we've got and and manage according to that yeah that's pretty much what we do we do adapt to what we have but I think being vigilant um, and not getting too caught up in the game, which is difficult in a final. So as I said, it was really great to have you from the spectator point of view, jump over the fence and run and get there first though, um, you know, in order to assess and make sure it wasn't a cardiac event. Um, and then for us to arrive quickly thereafter and just to take over. So it's again, um, if these events happen, they're going to be tragic. And hopefully, as you said, not everyone's going to have an AED present. We don't travel with an AED. For example, when we are lucky enough to be with SASCOC, the one team that does travel with an AED is the one that can afford it, which is the Sevens team, mm-hmm. uh, the Sevens rugby team. And they always travel with their AED. And their physio um, is, yeah, you know, he's the only one who who's there with the team 24-7 at practices, at matches, everything, but that goes with them firstly. That's the first thing that uh, that Hugh packs when, when he goes. For us, we rely on what is there, and in the preparation for any event, you need to spread out your financial resources properly into what is necessary. You don't need, for example, a specialist physician or an orthopedic surgeon there on the side of the field. You need to have, yeah, enough medical support staff, right? But again, an AED at least um, needs to be present. So, yeah, that's the one challenge in speaking and discussing and organizing events is how to spread financial resources, which are limited, and how we can make a greater effect if worst-case scenarios come into play. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I mean, although we've really just scratched the surface on on today's topic and we've focused mainly on hockey, I think this carries through to 
to all of our other amateur sports. Um, and I suppose just before I conclude, I, I just want to find out, is there something specific you wanted to add from your side, Gavin? Any, you know, pointers uh, or anything you might want to give yeah. someone looking to join these amateur sports and, and make a difference? Yeah, that's, um, look, it's a journey. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with professional teams as and professional circuits as well as mainly with an amateur side for a long period of time. And you can see the differences there um, and know that there are only a few. So for any aspiring or up-and-coming SEM physician, know that there are only a few teams or sporting codes that pay <laughs> and pay well, that you can travel with the team um, and be paid uh, your worth and value um and that the amateur sports unfortunately don't have that but if you are and you'll gravitate towards a sport i think that you want to be involved in from any point of view so for me for being a field site team physician as you know our specialty is multifaceted so consulting in the rooms being on the field side for field site care i'm I've been very, very lucky to be involved with SA Hockey for almost 15 years now and hope to continue to do so for for the forthcoming future. Um, and then as well, you gravitate to that sport, but you need to be passionate about it. You need to love it. And I think the thing that keeps all of us involved is one, that, but also the relationships that you build with the players and the management. We are... We all know what position we're in, but we all struggle and fight together. And we've gotten to know one another over the years and we've built long lasting relationships, which is probably the best thing that comes out of, out of all of this though, is that you really do get involved and get to know the people properly over time because you travel with them to some of the, you know some of the uh, some countries that you would never ever think you would ever go to <laughs> i think i've been to india more times than than most um for example but yeah you get to really know people and for me that has been the biggest i think the biggest win out of the last 15 years with the squad i've gone through sure i don't even know how many management changes over the last couple of years and and it's an old saying that we all use you know the names and the numbers will change but hopefully they lay the foundation for everything that's coming next and that's the thing that builds builds the team and builds the sport and builds hopefully us into what we hope is going to be a professional setup in future for the next generation we continue to talk about that and at this point in time, we've got specifically on hockey, we've got some amazingly talented players that just need that extra bit of exposure. And, and yeah, sponsors would go a long way in doing that. And if they could do that, yeah, I mean, what rugby has shown us, and yes, they are a professional sport and what the cricketers are doing at the moment I promise you hockey can do that as well. And that's that's my belief with, with the sport that I'm involved in at the moment. We saw it recently with the netball, with the Women's World Cup here in South Africa. We saw it with the Indoor World Cup, with the hockey as well, you know, how far the ladies and the men's got. 
Um, and yeah, look, amateur sports isn't for any for everybody in our profession. Again, it takes a lot of time and sacrifice away from your practice. Um, I hate to put work first, but that comes to mind. But also your family, um, and it's it's unpaid again time and sacrifice away from family, friends, loved ones, and everybody. You need to explain to everybody what it is all about. And fortunately enough, all of us have got, I would like to think, great support systems around us. And we support one another um, to whatever times everyone has gone through, you know. And there have been some really, really rough patches that many of the players and management and staff have gone through. And yeah, you know, whether it be on tour or off season or whenever, we all touch base and we find out how everybody's doing. So, which is great, you know, so that in a way is, is also why we, why I'm still involved, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Gavin and I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's the magic of sport, right? It's, it unites. So yeah, I, I just yeah, want to. Yeah, I just want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to share your journey with us. I really hope that this will also inspire others to get involved in some of our more amateur sports, as you've so passionately done. And I suppose in conclusion, I'd like to congratulate you and the entire South African team on the recent double victory at AFCON and a subsequent 2024 Paris Olympic qualification by both our men and women and of course, as you mentioned, in true South African style, over the last couple of weekends, our men had us at the edge of our yeah. <laughs> narrow 2-1 victory over Egypt. But we are absolutely so proud of you and everyone involved. Yeah, thanks, Mignon. Yeah, no, it's been a yeah, it's been a journey which we hope is going to yeah continue to develop from here. The next couple of months are going to be very interesting going forward in preparation for for Paris 2024. Um, as I said, I think there are only 37 or 35 weeks until that is upon us. And we've got a squad or, or squads to look after on the female side. There are on, on both female and men's side. So there's about 40 players each that we've got to keep an eye on. Uh, make sure that, you know, some of them are dealing with injuries now. We've got to make a couple of calls whether or not some can continue with conservative management or surgical um, is the next step and whether or not there's enough time because time is always running uh, running out when big tournaments are coming upon us and when selection is going to be made. And But our squads know it's not the 18 Unfortunately, only 18 can go to the Olympics. It's everybody that has contributed on the way that's going to get those 18 to represent everybody who's, uh, who's put in the effort to get them there. So, yeah, let's see what the next couple of months bring. It's going to be interesting. Um, but we hope, uh, yeah, we hope we can, uh, prove to, to everybody why we're there, you know? So, so yeah. Amazing. We look forward to it. Thanks, Gavin. All right, take care. Thanks, Manuel.